This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. If you took a bunch of headlines from various New Zealand news media outlets and tried to guess which ones ran which stories, you'd probably be wrong more often than right, according to Hal Crawford, an Australian editor who was formerly the boss at NewsHub here. These days he observes and advises our media from Australia, and he reckons our media landscape set to resemble theirs a lot more in 2022, with ideologies and partisan stances much easier to spot. But how come, and if so... Should we worry? But before that, a look back at the clamour over claims about cancellation in the media in 2021 and some achievements which were outstanding one way or another. An asteroid the size of the Eiffel Tower has done a flyby of Earth early this morning. Nereus 4660 was about 10 times further away than the Moon in its orbit of Earth. We're well familiar in New Zealand with natural hazards, uh, you know, with our volcanoes, with our earthquakes, with our tsunami. But this is one way you can predict it well in advance as long as you can find the asteroid. That was RNZ's news last Sunday at 10, just after last weekend's Media Watch aired on RNZ National, leading with some pretty startling news. Though the way the universe has been going recently, perhaps the most surprising thing about that was that that asteroid didn't smash into our planet. Fortunately, and unlike COVID-19, scientists saw this one coming and were forewarned. Though, if it were to threaten to come down anywhere near the vicinity of, say, Waipapakore Beach Village, someone surely would have called Far North Mayor John Carter. Hi, how are you? Good, thank um, you. I'm just in my car evacuating our village. Um, just hold on a minute, i just got to tell a neighbour you need to evacuate. Um, yeah, so, yeah, no, we, we've all got to go. During a tsunami alert back in March, John Carter evacuated the place while simultaneously being interviewed on RNZ's emergency news special. Rachel, you need to evacuate, there's a tsunami warning. Okay, sorry about that. That's fine, John. What's the situation? Multimedia multitasking at its best there, earning John Carter the Media Watch Award for... Best live contribution of 2021. Now, plenty of broadcast journalists, of course, manage some pretty good live crosses during the year, but John Carter there also managed to offer up an advertising slogan for the place while he was at it. Why, Papa Cody Beach, you've got to go. Now, while an object coming in from space was in the news last weekend in the form of that asteroid, billionaires with competing personal space programs going the other way were in the news all year, including Amazon's Jeff Bezos. Though he and his first-time fellow space tourists weren't exactly made of the right stuff, unless the right stuff is actually money and connections. He was joined by his brother Mark, 82-year-old pioneering aviator Wally Funk, and a student aged 18. But billionaire Jeff Bezos was gracious enough to thank his mostly low-paid staff and customers for making him rich enough to leave the planet with some mates and come back in the first place. Because you guys paid for all this. So, seriously, for every Amazon customer out there, And every Amazon employee, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, It's very appreciated. Don't mention it, Jeff. And all that made John Campbell pretty uptight on TVNZ's breakfast show at the same time. He actually said that. Now, so I start remembering what I've read about Amazon and the unions. And I go, so I Google Amazon unions. First article I find, how Amazon crushes unions. I mean, I just think it's outrageous. Come on. What a rhyme with anchor. You just have a cup of tea. 
Really and truly, I'm incensed. Uh, I went, yes, as we can I was tell. reading the line, I did think, think that. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, you talk about reading the room. He can take wow. his rocket and he can... Well, that early morning on-air rant was a bridge for length and the pops you heard there were exasperated hand claps by John Campbell and not the veteran host exploding under the pressure of his own indignation. Well, in fact, we here in New Zealand also helped out with Jeff's jaunt into space in the form of mega millions in tax breaks to make the Lord of the Rings TV series here for Amazon Prime. If Amazon applies for a screen production grant, it could get 20 to 25% of its New Zealand spending back. That could be a subsidy of between 300 and $375 million, all for the world's richest person. And in April, it was revealed that the discounts could have totaled more than $1 billion if the filming had gone on for the full five years, though that was news to the minister in charge, Stuart Nash, on Morning Report, and the startle host, Corin Dan. Uh, I'm not too sure. I haven't seen the Treasury advice, to be honest. But one thing I will say, I don't care what the Treasury advice would have been. But in any case, Amazon announced in August it was a goner after shooting just one season of possibly the most expensive TV series of all time here, for reasons that it never quite bothered to fully explain. Anyway, cheers, Jeff. Keep the change. And Media Watch's award for... Media Bludger of the Year 2021. And just last week, in probably not unrelated news, the government announced a review of funding and incentives for the screen production industry, something to keep an eye on in 2022. Now, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post with his spare change a few years ago, and the same day that he sent another bunch of tourists into space last weekend, his own paper, the Washington Post, reported that anti-vaxxers in the US raised tens of thousands of dollars from an Amazon charity, which donates half of 1% of all online purchases to non-profit organisations of the shopper's choice. And while it was a relatively small amount, the Washington Post reported, these groups are able to stretch their funds by spreading viral anti-vax messages cheaply on social media. And that's one of the things it's so very good at, as we now know. Toxic sludge was how crusading journalist Maria Ressa described that stuff the same week when she picked up the Nobel Peace Prize. The toxic sludge that's coursing through our information ecosystem prioritized by American internet companies that make more money by spreading that hate and triggering the worst in us. Now that played a big part in the spasm that shook the world when this year was just six days old. Can't frankly believe there are still Republicans tonight siding with the people who stormed the Capitol, who are wearing animal pelts and horns and scaling down the walls of the U.S. Senate. It's absurd. But not so absurd that some talkback callers here didn't swallow the fake news spawned by the storming of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. I've been watching um, what's been going on in America and these things. Mm. Antifa being violent, they were on the left. Yeah. Black Lives Matter. Yeah, Antifa did like not storm. Not the, minute, they did not storm the capital. That's your opinion because you're. No, that's a fact. Yeah, hang on, hang on, hang on. But while caller Rosemary there was angry about what was going on in the US, News Talk ZB host Kerry McIver said it was all rosy and COVID-free last summer here. Things are pretty rosy for many of us. Beautiful, beautiful weather. For many of us, it was a glorious summer, made all the more glorious by watching and hearing stories of the lockdowns in other parts of the world. Sucks to be them. And she wasn't the only radio host thankful for a COVID-free summer in God's own. We are grateful. And I think, I believe it's an act of God. Not the government, an act of God 
that has saved us from the terrifying ordeal that the UK citizens have unfolding all around them. It can't just be Jacinda Ardern and the Labour government. It has to be an act of God. But like John Banks on Magic Talk there, ZB's Kerry McIver wasn't inclined to credit the government either. Chances are we've already had COVID in the community. The public health system wasn't overwhelmed. The few ice skating rinks we have in the country weren't filled to the ceiling with corpses. Reprehensible bullshit that's coming out of this government. But if it was reprehensible bullshit you were after, John Banks was the leading supplier last January on Magic Talk, and not even God could save his radio career after a racist outburst later labelled a complete editorial and organisational failure by the organisation which gave him the gig in spite of his track record, MediaWorks. They fired John Banks even though he apologised for causing offence that day, offence he clearly didn't recognise even when his own listeners pointed it out to him. Jesus, this is disgusting, Banksy. What's disgusting? We're just talking the truth here. Everyone's had a fair run. Everyone can say what they think as long as they believe it. Even though John Banks was only on the air for a couple of weeks as a summer New Year stand-in on Magic Talk way back at the beginning of the year, he wins the Media Watch Award for... services to broadcasting in 2021 because Banksy's blurt about Maori Stone Age culture in part prompted culture change at MediaWorks itself. The company appointed a QC and ran a review into what had been going on there over the previous three years. And another of the hosts to go from Magic Talk back in February was the provocative Sean Plunkett who began the year with this prediction. I think we're going to spend a lot of time this year talking about freedom of speech and so-called hate speech and people being deplatformed. I think that sort of cultural conflict is going to continue apace here in New Zealand uh, this year. And he certainly ended up talking a lot about that after pledging to start up a new free speech flavoured platform which is due to start streaming early next year. And he signalled that some of those allegedly cancelled in 2021 and earlier might find a home on it. Another of those who vanished from Magic Talk later in the year was a host who became a hero. We're being experimented on and it just doesn't sit well with me, so I will not take it. Yeah, Gordon, that's precisely what I think about it as well. When it was announced in September that Peter Williams had decided to retire, with no warning at all, that left stand-in host Leah Parnapa holding a very angry baby on air. What a nice baptism of fire today was, let me tell you. Oh! Peter's gone, phones don't go, getting lots of love texts. Boy, this is great for day drinking, let me tell you. Peter Williams' disappointed fans cried foul and called in in numbers, claiming that he must have been pushed, possibly even by government interference, and they were more worried about that than the horrifying Lynn Mall knife attack. I feel a little bit less safe uh, this week than I did last week. It's in somewhere like a supermarket. I mean, that's just one of the places everyone can go. All right. Oh, you think I'm talking about the terrorist attack? Oh, sorry. No, no, I'm talking about the cancellation of Peter Williams. Oh. The Aparnapa, though, had to amplify the party line that Peter Williams had merely decided on his own, and quite suddenly, to spend more time off the air. So, the Aparnapa gets the Media Watch Award for... Taking one for the team in 2021. And in a year when many contrarians were claimed to have been cancelled by risk-averse and reputationally aware media companies, the Media Watch Award for Cancellation of the Year goes to... 
Sam Casey, a producer who lost his job even before he started it at a network which wasn't even on the air at the time. So, look, it's not uniquely his, and I do feel sorry for him that he's been the fall guy for basically a bunch of um, old ideas. Back in July, the soon-to-be-launched Aussie-owned radio sport network SENZ scrapped its deal with Sam Casey after a column of his in a rugby magazine which said women's rugby was just a drain on the game and that player and advocate Alice Soper, who we just heard there, was detached from reality with constant noise for resources. Sam Casey later admitted he hadn't put much thought into what one critic called a rambling manifesto direct from the Middle Ages, which he said he dashed off in about 20 minutes while waiting for the ferry. SENZ said it was inconsistent with its values of equality, respect and inclusiveness, and it publicly urged Sam Casey to learn more about women's sport after tearing up his contract. Sam Casey himself said ruffling feathers had been the aim of his opinion piece, but this turkey of a column turned out to be the sexist sports spray that sparked Sam's startling sacking. The race to vaccinate became the big story of 2021, and we had plenty of catching up to do when the vaccines started arriving in earnest in mid-year. Those in charge insisted that all was in hand back in June. The Ministry of Health says stocks of the COVID-19 vaccine are tight, but there isn't a shortage. But some in the media didn't really believe that. Looks like we're running out of the vaccine next uh, Monday, and this, as I say, is the whole country apparently possibly running out of the vaccine. Matthew Hooten has done the numbers for the Herald for an opinion piece that's in there right now. Well, those numbers were wrong. We didn't run out that Monday. But in a series of seasonal interviews recently with a skinny, tinny Christmas tree in the background, the Prime Minister just about admitted that the rollout was late and slow. When I reflect back, there are some learnings. You know, the, some of the most successful parts of the campaign have been where providers have had the freedom to just go out and, and do things in a way that have worked for them. And, and I think that they had barriers that... You know, I'll think about how could we have taken those down more quickly sooner for them. Um, and we can take that forward now for the 5 to 11 rollout. And so far there is no known cure for politicians pledging to take their learnings into account going forwards. In mid-July, News Talk ZB's Wellington host Nick Mills went the extra mile when an 83-year-old called Gloria phoned up his show to say that she was struggling to get the vaccine. He took her to get the jab himself, after which she reassured any nervous listeners it was perfectly painless. You're not, you know, 19 and you're going to be staying on your own tonight. Do you feel OK about that after having the injection? Of course I am. I'm fine. Nice stuff. But not so nice, though, was this question the following month. Uh, these uh, vaccination days at Porirua that are aimed at the Maori and Pacifica and one at Levin that happened yesterday, the same thing. We're getting a few uh, messages through, texts through, that they're finding them racist. What's your comment to that? Now, Chris Bishop pointed out in reply that vaccination drives targeting specific communities and populations need not be racist, and that was proved by the recipient of the MediaWatch Fact-Checking Award for 2021. News Talk ZB listener Tahana. And I've just heard on your radio show, man, that they think it's racist because it's mouldy and <laughs> non-mouldy and, and for Pacifica only, but... There are Māori, non-Māori, Pacific Island, non-Pacific Island. There are Pākehā people, non-Pākehā people out here, bro. Not, not, not any of those dodgy Pākehā people out there, is it? Mate, they're all dodgy out here. Pākehā, Māori. Nah, yeah. it's, it's all good, bro. 
And it was Tahana's tip-off and not the suspicions of the anonymous ZB texter that ended up in the next local news bulletin. One man who is there, named Tahana, told Nick Mills it's busy, cars are moving slowly, but people are in good spirits. Now, vaccine hesitancy and anti-vax attitudes were a real problem and one that parts of the media tried to overcome. Later in October, the biggest broadcast of any kind for many years was launched to lift lagging vaccination rates, the Vaxathon. It was thrown together in a matter of days and at times it was a bit clunky on air, but it helped. We have now hit 100,019 vaccinations today, which is awesome. Yes, baby. About one in every 50 eligible Kiwis got a COVID jab that day. Quite remarkable. But it didn't have the backing of the 2021 New Zealand Radio Awards Broadcaster of the Year. Uh, They're having a rah-rah vaccine day this weekend. What result are they looking for? Who would know? And if we don't know, when is the end? And if they hit a wall of resistance, then what? And that wall of resistance that Mike Hosking spoke of there had been much on his mind. Two months earlier, he was saying this. 55,000 a day, four or five months, would have seen over 8 million doses handed out. That would give us about the coverage most Western nations have been able to deal with before you hit a fairly serious wall of resistance. And back then, Mike Hosking reckoned we'd hit that wall at just 77 or 78 percent of eligible Kiwis. And even after his own employers at NZME began a campaign to get 90 percent of Kiwis jabbed by Christmas, Mike Hosking continued to pour cold water on that target too. Here's the cold, hard reality. If they're going to stick hard and fast to 90%, as much as I'd like to say otherwise, we are not getting there. Well, last Thursday, New Zealand did hit that 90% target, with the Herald joyously pointing out that New Zealand not only has now the lowest rate of hospitalisation and deaths in the OECD, it's one of only three countries to see life expectancy rise during the pandemic. And it would have been interesting to hear what Mike Hosking made of that achievement, but Mike Hosking's already on holiday possibly somewhere outside the Auckland borders, a trip made possible by those elevated vaccination rates. However, Mike Hosking did leave behind his last weekly column for the year for the New Zealand Herald, which appeared online just before that good news about the 90% target being hit on Thursday. And the column was called, Why This Year Was Worse Than The Last. And seeing as he left all of us that for Christmas, we'd like to honour him with... the Media Watch Wall of Resistance Award for 2021 for the way he steadfastly stuck to his underestimation of the New Zealand public's appetite for vaccinations and stubbornly didn't toe the line with his own employer's campaign to lift the vaccination rates. There's nothing new about contrary opinions being expressed in our media, as we've heard, by those with the editorial licence to do so in different outlets. But do we now have to expect our news outlets to be taking divergent stances on important issues? One former news boss here reckons so. Hal Crawford is an Australian news executive who was the chief news officer at MediaWorks from 2016 until February last year. Effectively, he was the editor-in-chief at NewsHub. Now he's a media consultant back in Australia, but he's still got quite a bit of influence on this side of the ditch. New Zealand On Air commissioned him for a major review of its media funding last year, and some of his recommendations have influenced how more than $100 million a year of public money is now spent. And last week, he was appointed as the chair of a new advisory group for the government's $55 million Public Interest Journalism Fund, and he's also one of five local advisors to Meta, formerly known as Facebook. 
Recently in the spin-off, Hal Crawford said that the prevailing decency and non-partisan nature of the New Zealand news media that he found here when he arrived five years ago is now breaking down, and he thinks it's changing into something closer to the Australian landscape where major media companies often take politically partisan stances and opposing editorial approaches to differentiate themselves. So how come, and if so, should we worry about more of that in 2022? Walking into that newsroom is one of the things I noticed was that the media scene in New Zealand was quite different from Australia. Part of it is Kiwi character, I think, how New Zealand reporters are and journalists Um, and there's a level of uh, sort of decency and kindness there in interactions. I I think that the primary reason is probably how news cultures developed and and the market forces working on the newspapers in particular. Uh, NS newspapers sort of were winnowed down to one paper in one city. That tends to make outlets centrist because you can get the biggest audience if you plonk yourself in the middle of the bell curve of the population. And where you don't have competitors in the market, then there's no reason not to do that. Yeah, and and that, fact, happened, that happened quite yeah. early in New Zealand, didn't it, Hal? I mean, some places like the, in Christchurch, they were one-paper towns effectively by the mid-1990s. And that's the kind of force or lack of forces that had been working on New Zealand newspapers. Now that there is a consolidated market, really, and and you're competing for the national uh, attention, there's a much bigger impetus to differentiate from your competition and to find a market niche. So that's why I see, um, you know, forces pushing, uh, in, in particular NZME and stuff apart. What are the things that make you believe that? What are the signs you're seeing? Uh, that they're actually diverging along possibly sort of, I think you even used the word, ideological lines. I see it as a, a, as a, a necessary business and strategic move. Uh, I think it's quite possible to be a good journalist and to be honest and to be a big, good editorial outfit and to be more ideologically aligned than, you know, being smack bang in the centre. That having said that, I think there are big dangers. Stuff in particular, uh, is gaining some benefit from being more explicit about its editorial mission. Think about the way that news operations uh, get revenue at the moment. It's, It's sort of no surprise. Stuff have gone down the Guardian route. The Guardian route is to ask for contributions from your readers, and these amounts of money are not small. They're very significant, and they can make um, huge differences to the way those business operate. So it, it's central to the operation of the business. And if you're asking people for contributions, you want to be the sort of place uh, that people really believe in. So you have to be really explicit about your values, um, your mission, your ideology. Uh, and then people will say, great, I want to be part of that. I've spoken actually to the, the former marketing manager for Guardian Australia it's, it's really interesting. You know, people don't want anything in return. What they need to do is really believe in what you're doing. Different and for Stuff, though, eh? Because The Guardian is a native digital operation in Australia, whereas Stuff is a legacy newspaper publisher. And when they launched, for example, I guess an example of what you're talking about there is their Tomato Porno project, you know, re-examining and, uh, their, their history of Māori reporting and their commitment to doing it better and more fairly. That alienated some of their existing 
newspaper subscribers, you know, getting the printed paper delivered in their mailbox because it wasn't what they expected and signed up to the paper for. So can have a cost, you know, t- taking that sort oh, of well, approach. I mean, I think you put your finger right on it and, and highlighted one of the tensions here, which is, of course, in targeting uh, your editorial offering, necessarily you are um, separating yourself from, from some of your audience or from some of your potential audience. That's a cost. So I don't think NZME and stuff are going to end up absolutely at the right and left extremes by any means because they still need big audiences. But clearly they are going to benefit in future from being different from each other and from uh, more accurately and, and more satisfyingly targeting their particular kinds of audience. I mean, putting it crudely, if you pick on stuff in NZME, the publishers of the New Zealand Herald, some people say, oh, stuff, yeah, they have this mission now, which has some social responsibility at the heart of it. They've gone woke, they've gone left, say some. On the other side, you've got the clearly right-leaning stuff at News Talk ZB, which is part of that NZME company, which is all amplified on the New Zealand Herald's platform as well. So it looks as though a lot of their commentary and the commentators line up to the right. Is that it? Because when you said you ran this sort of sniff test survey, getting news professionals to check headlines that you'd picked out that were from Herald or stuff, they couldn't pick out which belonged to which. So is it really a matter of style rather than ideology? That that sniff test that I ran was really interesting, actually. And effectively, with the New Zealand headlines, uh, people couldn't tell. I, I did this a similar test for the Australian and the Guardian uh, in uh, Australia with their digital headlines, people were much more likely to know. In fact, I think it was about 75%. So people could basically tell where they came from. And the reason that you can tell the difference between The Guardian and, and The Australian is just such a clear slant in what they choose to cover and how they choose to cover it. There's, there's a couple you know, of uh, fascinating charts, actually, in your newsletter, I think taken from the Reuters International Survey, which show the political orientation of audiences on a kind of spectrum, um, uh, I guess, with some of the readers surveyed as to what they thought. And you can see it when there's the offline news brand. So Sky News, Rupert Murdoch's channel, television channel, way off to the right, a real outlier there. On the other side, the age, so, you know, the the daily paper of record in Melbourne on the left as identified by the readers when it comes to the online news brands really interesting because the ages site is pretty much near the middle but you've got yes those Rupert Murdoch newspapers the Australian the Herald Sun uh, and the Sky News website part of his News Corps empire um, those are all off to the right pretty pretty stark yeah, uh, this is really interesting data, and it is part of that, as you mentioned, Reuters. Um, globally, they do these digital news reports, and they do them every year. In Australia, what they actually measure is the political leanings of the audiences of those outlets. So they ask you whether you regard yourself as left, right, um, very right, very left, whatever, and then they sort of correlate that against what you read or consume in terms of news. And um, one thing about that chart of Australian media, ranked left to right, is that it lines up almost exactly with perceptions of the ideological bias of outlets. On the very far left, you've got the Saturday paper. It's a, very, it's a sort of intelligentsia, uh, actual paper and website put out by Schwartz Media in Melbourne. Truly, it is quite, you know, left-leaning. 
on the right, there's Sky News, which, you know, used to have Alan Jones as a commentator and so forth. This is really interesting data. Unfortunately, we don't have the equivalent data for New Zealand. And I'd love for, you know, the digital news report, if it were possible for us to extend that, it would be awesome to have the same readout on New Zealand media. My guess is that they would be clustered much more closely together in the middle. Another big picture observation is that there are more outlets on the left than on the right and that they tend to be more moving more extremely to the left. So that's something that you might not realise. Well, it seems counterintuitive, I guess, to most people that if you're not trying to target the broad audience, uh, you're not going to make the most money. However, you say in your piece, uh, you believe the forces that created that centrist tendency have mostly now disappeared. And you say, increasingly, we will see ideologically differentiated editorial offerings. That means more overtly political news reporting, more identity-based coverage of all kinds. But is it is it commercially driven as much as just trying to appeal to the audience you think you can attract? Because you refer to a strong impetus for competing publishers to differentiate ideologically. It's hard to tease apart what would be explicit and, and intentional and, and what would just be getting pushed around by the market forces. But it doesn't, in the end, it doesn't really matter. What we're going to see is publishers being rewarded for divisive content, content that um, emphasises the identity of their core audiences. And they will tend to that because they will get rewarded to that for that. In the end, news organisations are like animals in a biosphere. You, you adapt to your ecology and they will adapt to their ecology. They're in competition with each other. They need to appeal more strongly to their core audience and they will be rewarded for what I would call ideological content. So that's the way that they're going to go. My sort of hope is that you would be able to do that and still have a commitment to honesty. And that's the real important thing. You know, you might say, well, yeah, I do believe in calling out woke nonsense or I do believe in social justice. You might say either of those two things. But you might also say, and I have a commitment to be honest and tell the truth, even if it is something that contradicts my beliefs or goes against my ideal. This is the, pro- the real problem here, Colin, is the idea that you're on a team. And uh, this is what I don't like when it comes to newsrooms. Uh, you know, you, you, you're not on a team. You know, if you are on a team, it's, it's the team of, you know, it's team truth. <laughs> You know, that's that's kind of my idea here is that this is inevitable and that given that it's inevitable, let's work out how we can do this well. So bring team woke together with team political correctness has gone mad. <laughs> but it does make me wonder, Hal, I mean, I guess it's a moot point, but what if that NZME stuff merger or takeover, uh, as it could have been, had actually happened if a single unit as both companies at one point and their management wanted for New Zealand had merged together. If we had one single unit, would it have remained middle of the road or would there have been some sort of ideological tussle and we would have seen that single unit drift to the right or left, whatever they thought uh, there might be more money in? I don't don't think so. I I think the the fate of New Zealand media would have been completely different um, if, if that had gone through. And that, it's really fascinating to contemplate that and, and, and the power um, 
sort of wielded in uh, in that anti-competitive uh, decision that was made. It was just, um, you know, it was it was a path in the it was it was two two paths in the forest, really, wasn't it? And um, and New Zealand chose one of them, and I'm not sure that we can say that that was. Um, Good, although certainly some very interesting outcomes um, with you know Sinead actually owning the company have come out of it, uh, and that's allowed stuff uh, a lot more leeway in their strategic decisions since then. So, so that's a really interesting, I would say, positive development. However, had that merger gone ahead, yes, I think that there would have been a massive um, giant in New Zealand media plonked right there in the middle. Um, and you know, who who would have been the competing forces then? Perhaps you guys, perhaps RNZ, uh, especially if there's going to be a, a, a merger, um, some kind of public uh, media entity created with TVNZ, that could have been a, a competing force. Um, however, I think that if the merger had gone ahead, really it would have um, sort of ensured that New Zealand media stayed centrist for uh, a long time. That's Hal Crawford, an Australian news executive who was formerly the chief news officer at MediaWorks, now a media consultant back in Australia. He reckons our media are less centrist than they used to be and likely to become more ideologically divergent in 2022, a bit more like they are in Australia. We'll see. That's all from Media Watch this week, and thanks so much for listening this year. Do have a happy Christmas, but we're not quite done yet with 2021. We'll be back again next Sunday on Boxing Day with the Media Watch Christmas bonus, looking back on the year and handing out a few more of those awards for outstanding achievement. So see you again one last time this year at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.